This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So the only thing left to say is, you in? Order now on the McDonald's app. And you can also get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants, 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to Albion Analysis with me, Chris Hall, and him freshly back from his holidays, Pete George. Delighted to come back to three wins in a row. Absolutely incredible. We've been doing this podcast since January. This is the first time we have ever been able to talk about three wins in a row. In fact, to give you the exact data, the last time we won three in a row was August 2021, so the very start of the Valerian Ishmael regime, Pete. What a time to be alive. Yeah, wow. Um, I'm surprised it was that far back, to be honest. I thought Ishmael would have got a few few more later on because he started so well. But yeah, I mean, I said a few weeks ago that I wasn't judging Corbran on the, the next three games before the World Cup break. I mean, I'd... Maybe you are, but in a positive way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was happy to get a few points out of it, but I wasn't really concerned about it because I thought that World Cup break would be a good chance for him to to put his squad and his tactics onto the onto the squad. Um, but you know, nine points from the past three is is brilliant and a great way to go go into the World Cup break out of the relegation zone. <laughs> Also, across those three games, Pete, and we will go into this in more granular detail in, in, in a moment, but in a very general sense, it, ha- it you've seen a growth through the three games, haven't you? Because Blackpool was, it was not great. It wasn't a great performance, but our, our next win was never going to be great because I think everybody was on the floor a little bit confidence wise. It was, you know, it, it was difficult. You see it all the time. Sometimes you just get, you just have to get a win. What, what, what is often called by football people an ugly win. And there's no two ways about it. The Blackpool was an ugly win. It wasn't a great game. It was an ugly goal stabbed in from, uh, from like three yards from a, from a set piece where the ball sprung free. It was not a pretty victory against the team that had come to park the bus as well and then you go to QPR and and okay it wasn't the most silky free-flowing performance it wasn't uh, we didn't dominate the game by any stretch of the imagination but what it was was I feel like the the game at QPR was what we tried to do to Norwich earlier in the season and didn't quite get it done um, we, you know it was it, it was probably the archetypal away performance but then Saturday Pete in terms of that growth, that was a dominant performance. That was a game where, you know, we've won that game 2-0. If we'd won that game 4-0, I don't think anybody would have said, oh, the scoreline flattered Albion. I think they'd have said Albion were four goals better than Stoke. And it's nice to see that growth from scrappy win to professional job to beat a team on their own patch to let's, you know, now now we're confident enough to go and absolutely dominate a team. Yeah, and we said it a while back that we just kind of needed to get any kind of result, clean sheet, um, even if it's scrappy, and just get that clean sheet and sort the defence a little bit and, and then build the confidence from there and hopefully go on, go on a run. And that's exactly what's happened. Um, but that's the thing. We haven't built from there a lot of the time when we've got that when we've got that clean sheet or we, we've got that win this season. We obviously, we, we, we beat Hull. We then didn't, we didn't build from, uh, from there. I mean, we got the clean sheet against Luton, but obviously then we went and sacked the manager. So you can't really, you can't really build from there. We haven't really, we, this is the first time this season that you, that you feel like we've actually built a bit of momentum, really, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we haven't had that many clean sheets this season. We were talking about it off air and I think we, it was two, wasn't it, under Bruce and then obviously one, um, after Bruce was sacked away at Reading. Um, 
and we haven't had that many wins either. So there hasn't really been much to build on. And it's, you know, under Bruce, we're just conceding very early on in games, which was really putting us on the foot. So not only have we sorted that issue, but we've sorted most of the issues with the defence, it seems, at the minute after, uh, is it three clean sheets on the bounce, is it? Yeah, three clean sheets on the bounce since the Sheffield United defeat. Yeah, so it looks like we're at the start of some defensive stability. Um, if you look at the the underlying numbers, then they're showing a similar thing, um, that the defence is, is improving. We're giving away la- less uh, high-quality chances. And and obviously, having Alex Palmer in goal, um, we're seeing benefits there as well, that he's making some saves that, maybe David Button wouldn't have done towards the start of the season. Agreed. And when you see Button let in five from five shots in an, in, in an under-21s game, you do sort of see the problem there, Pete. But but equally, and I'm, we're going to go really deep on the defence in just a second, but just from a very top-line level, is Alex Palmer even actually as busy as David Button was earlier in the season? Because to my eye, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like he's having he, he, it doesn't seem in the last three games that he's had an awful lot to do. Blackpool, to be honest, he he, he probably could have brought his tea if he'd wanted to. Like, I, I, you know, I think he could have uh, could have set up a nice picnic blanket and had a lovely old uh, lovely old snack in that goal mouth because there was nothing for him to do. QPR, all I can really think of is that Lyndon Dyke shot that he has to turn around the post. And then against Stoke on Saturday, he's made a smart save late on, but the game, I think it was really late on. I think we, I think we were talking like 87, 88th minute here and the game was done really. I mean, we were, we, we were coasting towards victory. I mean, and not defending David Button because David Button was not good enough. He was letting way too many shots by him. It was appalling, the level of his goalkeeping. But when we compare the two, Palmer to Button, I mean, okay, Palmer's throwing in the odd save, but is the reality that the guys in front of Palmer are just performing way, way better than the guys in front of Button were? Well, yes, for the past three games. The expected goals against has been is definitely dropped. So we're, as I say, giving away less high quality chances. So Palmer's having less to do. But overall, for the games that they've played in the league this season, David Button's faced about 0.84 expected goals on target per game. Um, so based on the shots, the quality of the shots rather than where they're taken from. So kind of if they're hitting the corners of the goals, um, and kind of the power of the shots and that sort of stuff you'd expect an average keeper to concede 0.84 in the games that Button's played in, whereas for Palmer it's 0.7. So it is slightly down, but but not by a, a massive amount. Um, and when you look at the just the overall performance, uh, Button was performing at 50, 58% of his expected goals on target and Palmer at 90%, and where you'd expect an average goalkeeper, an average shot stopper to perform at 100%. And someone who's performing better than average over 100. So Palmer's still slightly below what you'd expect from the average keeper, but much improved on what David Button was offering. Yeah, absolutely. And, and credit to Alex Palmer, five clean sheets in nine games. You cannot fault that. That's, you know, that's pretty superb to be fair to him. Um, so, you know, anybody getting over 50% of their games as clean sheets, you, you've got to applaud that. That's absolutely tremendous. But moving on to the players in front. And I do think this is where, Corbran, from the moment he's walked through the door, Pete, has has put his focus. Um some some of the stuff that has been has has been said in, in recent weeks, just or in in the last few days, from from the likes of Darnell Furlong and people people like that, talking about how much better we've uh, we've been defensively and how much information that they've been given first of all you've got to wonder where a lot of this information was on uh, under bruce that this does seem like fairly basic stuff that 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 we should be that we should be doing really that we should be coaching these players i mean uh, i think darnell furlong's exact quote was that um that that we've been given a structure that they've been given a structure and that uh, they're given uh, they're given granular information that they that they need to know but also it just seems common sense as well because 
He's got two defense, central defenders in Carl Bartley and Daro Shea. And both of them, we know, are two of the better box defenders in this division. And what I mean by a box defender is they are the kind of players that if you sit them deep and balls come into the box, whether that be aerially or across the ground or whatever, that they are just very, very good at thumping them clear. Now, you might think that's the basics of defending, and to a certain degree it is, but some uh, some teams don't want to play like that. You look at, for example, Manchester City like to play a very high line, play their defence far up the field with a lot of space in behind. Now, we tried that against Birmingham City. We got absolutely murdered with Kyle Bartley in there. Corbran has, has come in, and I just feel like, Pete, he's taken a horses for courses approach. He's looked at the two guys we've got, and he's uh, and he's gone, okay, Stoke or whoever else, QPR as well for that matter. We're going to play these guys deep. You are not going to get in behind us. If you want to score against us, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to get down the sides and put balls across, or you're going to have to put balls in high. And I trust these two guys to defend those areas. And you look at the data from from the weekend, and Carl Bartley, nine aerials won. 10 clearances. Dara O'Shea made eight. So that's 18 clearances between our two centre-backs. To put that in perspective, before Corbran, the average was between seven and eight clearances. Now, high levels of clearances aren't necessarily a good thing. They, could, they, might, they might mean that you're under pressure. But in this case, it's a tactical decision. It's a decision to say, I have got two players that I trust to clear absolutely everything. So I'm just going to sit deeper. I'm not going to leave any space in behind and we are going to defend our box. We uh, Stoke even had more possession than us in a game that we that we dominated 51% to 49%, very marginal, but still more possession than us. Not necessarily what you'd expect from how dominant we were. But again, it's a tactical decision from Corbran. When we haven't got the ball, we drop off. They can come and have a go at us, but they do not get chances in our penalty box. And it's working, Pete. Yeah, and been compact and forcing the opposition wide will obviously give us more bodies defending the central areas, even just outside the box as well, which is, you know, we've conceded a lot of long shots from those kind of areas. So if you've got more bodies in there and less space, you're less likely to concede from there. Um, like you say, Bartley and O'Shea are excellent in the air. So it makes sense to, to force the opposition wide and, and make them put those crosses in because you will feel comfortable with those two heading the ball away um, and defending like that. And, you know, the, the numbers show that we're, we're not pressing as high as we did under Steve Bruce. Um, so there's obviously going to be less space in behind the back line, which, as you say, we, we suffered when we played Birmingham to that because we didn't have Ajayi. Um, he's obviously very quick and can help to cover any balls that do go in behind that high line. Um, so it, it does seem to be that he's adapted to his his approach to the squad that he's got, which is promising because, um, I mean, he's come in midway through the season and he's inherited a squad, so he's got to be able to use that squad to the best of its ability. But was Steve Bruce doing that? Because, I mean, we were very critical after the Birmingham game of the way that we we set up that we we said it was suicide to it. it we 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 decided it was absolutely criminal to leave that much space in behind against any against any team i mean blues aren't exactly the most mobile team in 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 the league scott hogan is not the fastest player in in the league but to leave that amount of space in behind without shemi ajayi just seemed crazy it seemed absolutely barking to me and yet we did it i mean and we got away with it to a certain degree against Burnley as well in the previous game with, uh, where, where Nathan Teller exposed us a bit in behind as well. And I, I, yeah, I, I just uh, I just wonder whether... I, I'm not one of these that thinks Steve Bruce was a tactical dinosaur. I really don't. Um, and I, I was uh, I was on um, uh, I was on the, the Hawthorns debate club um, uh, earlier in the week because you know I get podcast withdrawal sim- uh, symptoms when you're not around, Pete. If if I'm not on a podcast a week, I start to sort of like shake and convulse. I have to do something about it. So um, no, but they were brilliant guys, really, really lovely, and lovely to chat to them as well. Really, really top group. Um, uh, but 
and I was, I was saying, I was saying on there that I don't think Bruce is a tactical dinosaur. I think the way he actually set us up was re- relatively progressive. My problem with Steve Bruce was that I thought he was extremely slow to adapt. He was slow to realize Button wasn't the right goalkeeper for him. He was slow to change his defensive line after Ajayi got injured. I just think he was slow to, and, and, and I, I almost never saw him adapt tactics in game. And I thought it was really noticeable as well that at 2-0, when the game was just getting a little bit more stretched, straight away, Corbran goes, right, I'm putting an extra defender on. I'm putting Eric Peters on. And the shape changes ever so slightly. And it was a bit more of a bit more of a back five from that point. When did you ever see Steve Bruce change the shape in game? I I I just didn't, and I'm not saying changing the the formation is is the be all and end all because we had this debate with Valerian Ishmael where people were talking Plan B, Plan B, and what they meant was change the formation. The changing the formation is not always the right thing to do, but sometimes just to kill a game off or whatever. It is the right thing to do because you don't want the game to get too stretched. You do want to have that extra body in there. And Corbran just seems to be able to adapt. And I think my big concern with Bruce was that I think what he did in the week was okay. And the way he set us up at the start of the season was okay. But the only the only time I can ever really remember him adapting, really adapting in a really reactive kind of a way was half time on the opening day of the season at Middlesbrough. Other than that, I just think he was really slow to adapt. And in the, uh, whether that be the goalkeeper, whether that be the defensive line, whether that be the formation, whether that be the personnel playing players in their best, best positions. uh, And I think in the end, that's what cost him his job. And I think conversely, I think it's a real, real strength that we've got with Carlos Corbran. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, the initial tactics from Bruce seemed to be good and they seemed to work and weren't that of a tactical dinosaur. I mean, we were pressing high and, um, and trying to win the ball back in the opposition's defensive thirds, which is, you know, what not the kind of tactics that you'd associate with that so-called dinosaur kind of manager. It's just lazy to to label somebody who's a bit older and has had a lot of jobs as a as a dinosaur, isn't it? It's it, it it's just something people do without even looking at what's going on on the pitch. Yeah, because I mean, I think the tactics were were kind of they looked good early on, but then obviously with the injury of DK, um, meant that we were lacking that kind of striker. Ajay getting injured really affected our ability to play the high line and press high. The problems came in Bruce being able to adapt and. His recruitment, his recruitment as well, because we kind of didn't fill the the areas that we needed back up in or needed to improve in, um, and then because of that, we we struggled to adapt when we did have those injuries. And I mean, at that point, we didn't really have the the personnel to play the style of football that I think Bruce wanted to initially, which is to me why we suffered after that um, and couldn't really. But he needs to any... find a solution there, doesn't he? He can't. He, he can't. He can't keep going, going and going, trying to slam a round peg into a square hole, can he? And that's exactly it. That he struggled to. He wouldn't. He didn't adapt to kind of the situation that we were in, and because of that, we we struggled. Um, whereas under Corbran, he's got the exact same players, and he's picked up more clean sheets than in four games than Bruce did for his entire thirteen. I think it was. So well, Carl Bartley's gone from looking like a guy who was completely and utterly finished to looking like one of the best defenders in the league. And it's just about playing to his strengths, really. We said it at the end of last season when we were talking about our defenders that Bartley is best when he's sitting deeper, protecting his box, winning any aerials that are coming his way, and kind of blocking shots that come from with within the box. He's not good when you force him to play a high line and want him to to cover a huge amount of space behind him. He's not got the pace for that. Um, maybe not got the the positioning for it either. But if you're asking him to to head away crosses and and defend deeper, then you know he's probably one of the better defenders in the div- in the division for doing that. Um, Does the same go for Dara as well, Pete? Do they have similar strengths? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, I think Dara's probably a bit better on the ball, um, but. In terms of defending, I think, again, he, he probably is better uh, defending a bit deeper. I'm still, yeah, I'm just, I'm still unsure about what he's best at and what kind of system he 
he best suits. He's still very young, obviously. So yeah, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see how he how he gets on under Corbran and and what we see because he's still young and he's a fair bit of his early career playing in fullback. Um, he's obviously got the centre back spot now, which is his preferred position. So yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how he develops under a coach that seems to um, seems to be more defensively sound than the previous coach. I just want to dwell on Carl Bartley for a minute, Pete, because I don't know about you, but I I think he gets unfairly maligned, and not and not least by myself sometimes, because I know I've had a very up and down relationship with 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 Carl Bartley or how I feel about Carl Bartley. Um, you know, before before people start calling me a hypocrite, because I know that I've said said things about him on Twitter. The first season he was at the club, I couldn't believe we'd paid as much money as we did for him. Thought you know, thought he looked absolutely dreadful in that in that season under under Moro, and then. And and then look, I got I got some stick on Twitter because I I called him a I, I referred to him as a moron for getting sent off against Millwall. I didn't mean that I think Carl Bartley's a moron. I meant that I thought that what the 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 action that he took whilst on a yellow card was moronic at that stage of the game. Plus, I was frustrated that I'd just come away from seeing us lose two one at, at Millwall in a game which we didn't need to lose. So I mean I I've, I've been part of the problem and I'm not I'm not even going to not even going to disguise that but at the same time I'm not part of the the people who 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 booed him off or cheer when he gets taken off I think that's a little bit too far to say the least but also and, and I just want to kind of defend Carl Bartley here because we've said it for a while um, we said it at the at the end of last season when we ran through each area of the team on on an individual pod when we did our defenders pod we said that Bartley if you play to his strengths, is one of the best box defenders in the division. Now we we cut a little bit of stick for saying that, Pete, because Carl Bartley gets um, gets a lot of distaste. He's kind of in that. I, I know why he's in that bracket of players that people think have been at the club too long. Matt Phillips, Jake Livermore, Carl Bartley, or, or, or a few of these people think that they're almost milking the club, not uh, and not earning their wages. I don't really understand that attitude towards Bartley. I mean, we'll mention Phillips briefly in in a minute, but I think you can make that argument with Phillips, not least because he's missed too many games through injury over over the last two years to say that he is worth the money that we've been paying him. Livermore, up and down from what I hear, he's a good character around the dressing room. He has got himself sent off too many times in the past. He, he doesn't, he hasn't set a good example in, in that sense. But from what I hear, he's an absolutely fantastic bloke and, and does a lot for us off the pitch. But Bartley, when I was actually looking back through, I mean, the managers that have played him to his strengths, Billich, and he was brilliant the promotion season. And do you know what? He didn't have a bad season in the Premier League either. And he was good under Big Sam. He was absolutely fine under under Valerian Ishmael. And he's been excellent since Carlos Corbran came in. Really, he's only he's only really let himself down under uh, consistently under Darren Moore and under uh, under Steve Bruce, which is. Obviously, two managers out of six, and it's crazy that we've had six managers since we signed Carl Bartley, by the way. But my point is, Pete, I think overall, if you were to stack them up, and this is a very hard thing to gauge because how do you gauge what a good game is? But I would suggest that Carl Bartley has probably had more good games for West Bromwich Albion than he's had bad games. And yet, I know when he is bad, he is unconscionably bad. Like the Birmingham game, he's just, he's so bad, it's glaring. Like you, you, you can't even ignore it. But I don't, I don't get what who, a guy who I reckon probably is, is at least sort of like bare minimum 60 40 in favor of having had good games versus bad games gets quite as much stick as he, as he does. Because I think most of the time when Carl Bartley's had a bad game, it's generally the coach's fault rather than Bartley's fault. What do you think? Yeah, I think he kind of probably suffers because he's not a um, progressive defender. He doesn't do much that looks pretty. Um, you know, he's good at heading the balls clear, good at winning that first header in the opposition box as well that we've seen in the past few games. So useful for set pieces. Off the top of my head, he probably doesn't score very often. I know I'm saying that after back-to-back goals, but in the past, so... Again, you know, goals gets well. He, he, even even then, Pete, he should have had a hat trick on on Saturday, as daft as it sounds. Yeah, 
And but if you're a defender that scores a load of goals, then obviously you're much easier to become a fan's favourite. Um, but I think he just doesn't do the the glamorous things. So therefore, if he does make a mistake, it's kind of forgotten the good thing that good things that he has done in the past. Um, but you know, if he keep his job simple um, and defend. Sorry, just on that point, Pete. So basically what you're saying is the bad things he does are more memorable than the good things he does, even though the good things he does probably outweigh the bad things he does. Yeah, that's probably a good way to sum it up. Um, You know, because the good things he does generally just kind of go under the radar. They're nothing, not particularly great to to watch or, or memorable at all. They're just kind of winning headers, blocking shots. But yeah, the kind of things that go under the radar and aren't memorable. Whereas if he makes a mistake um, and gets caught having to defend big areas of space, then they're a bit more memorable. So he probably gets gets more stick than is deserved. Um, saying that, I do think that we should probably still let his contract expire at the end of the season. Um, I think as do I. I think we do need to refresh the squad a bit and bring in some some younger players. At the same time, I do think he's a good defender at this level when you give him a job to do that he's good at. Um, when you ask him to play in a high line as part of a centre-back pairing rather than a trio and cover big spaces in behind, then he's obviously going to struggle. But if you sit deeper, let him defend the box, uh, head away crosses, block shots in there, then he's going to do you a good job and be a solid defender for you. How important, before we before we move on from uh, the defensive side of things, how important has... Okay, Koslu's role in the in improving that uh, that defense been because I, I thought he was he was outstanding on Saturday and when you actually look at his average position he's so deep I mean he is literally he's almost a third center half uh, where where the average position where where he touches the ball um, he offers them so much protection because when you talk about shifting from a five to a four. The the easy assumption is that you are more exposed in a four than you are in in a five, but if you've got a, a, a centre mid who is so disciplined as Yukoslu was on Saturday, it doesn't half help, does it? Yeah, and again with him, it's it's similar to Bartley for me. Is that you kind of want to keep his job relatively simple and and have him in front of your defence to break up moves and protect protect that defence and kind of not do too much too many glamorous things again um, if he can break up play uh, win tackles and win the ball back then and lay it off to another player then then he's very good and that's what we kind of saw when we had him in the Premier League and he really impressed everyone so if we can get him doing that again then I think we're going to see a very good Yokozlu probably again is benefiting from the team being more compact in general when we're defending so he's got Again, less space to cover, which is obviously much easier as a defensive player. Um, so I think, obviously, he's, he's definitely helping us, but I think the change in shape is helping him as well. So, which again comes back to Corbran probably adjusting his style to the squad that he's got. Also, Pete, you can talk about Corbran's adaptability there. Do we do we also see that? I mean, I, we spoke about this um, uh, when after, uh, after I'd heard his comments post the um, uh, the Blackpool game, and, uh, and we 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 discussed um, we discussed the fact that he he said that QPR is going to be a very different game to to the Blackpool game, and I said he will he will change it up, he will change it up for 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 QPR. Now we've won three games on the spin at this point. He hasn't kept the same eleven for any of them. I mean, most people would say, "Oh, you, you know, you, 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 you win games. You, you don't change your winning side." And uh, I, I mean, again, something I, I said on uh, on the on the Hawthorns Debate Club that I feel that that was a, a level of naivety that we saw from Beal that he didn't change that 11 from Reading to Bristol City because there was a lot of old, older players in there. You're asking them to play two games in a very short period of time. Also very different oppositions. I feel like Corbran 
sees every game as a microcosm, doesn't really care what the result was the game before. He realises that Blackpool are a different threat to QPR, are a different threat to Stoke, and there are different ways to beat different opposition. And I really like the fact that he... That, that that he changes his eleven. I, I bet he because because uh, I saw that I saw people saying things after the after the QPR game. He doesn't like Brandon Thomas Asante. He doesn't bright, like Brandon Thomas Asante. No, there's none of that. I don't believe I don't believe that there is any any of that level of emotion from Corbrand towards any of these players at this moment in time. I think he just sees horses for courses. I think he has a very intelligent approach to picking his 11, which is what is the best team to both nullify and defeat the 11 that I think the opposition are going to turn out with the tactics that I think the opposition are going to turn out. And I think that's something we'll continue to see through the season. And I, I just, I, I, I personally, again, I really like it because what we saw under Bruce was a lot of going back to the well with the same players over and over again. And this is an aging squad and it has been a very intense season and it will continue to be an intense season after the World Cup with the volume of games. And I really like the fact that Corbran does not feel the need to, I think he will only pick the same 11 two weeks in a row if he believes the same 11 are the best players to beat that group of players that he's coming up against. And that's something that I imagine a lot of Albion fans will find refreshing because under Ishmael as well, we were, he kind of stuck with, his, stuck with his system and was very confident that what he was doing was right. Um, and probably the fact that he learnt on that we were kind of just getting unlucky so he didn't adapt what he was doing. Corbrand seems to be the opposite where he's willing to adapt game by game and put out the best, what he feels is the best 11 to beat the opposition in front of him. Um, I mean, the other thing is in the past three, well, four games that he's he's been in charge, it's probably a case of just seeing what his players are like and just maybe testing a couple of them out and testing different partnerships out. And Did we massively see that against Sheffield United? I mean, he changed the formation maybe three, four times during that game. It's like it's it's like he almost treated that game like a pre-season friendly so that he could get the results in the next three. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously very early days for him. And I would have thought his initial aim for the season would be to get out of the relegation battle, which with the amount of time that we've got left in the season and the squad we've got didn't really matter too much if we lost that. Sheffield United game, and it didn't matter too much if we'd not picked up many points in the three after that. So it was kind of a bit of a time to to see what we got, um, what maybe works, and and what adaptations he can make in the game. So I do think it was maybe considered slightly as a um, yeah, like you say, preseason games where you can kind of test a few things out. Um, obviously, what he did for the the past three games. It's definitely worked because we come come away with nine points and no goals conceded. Um, so I think he'll have definitely learned a lot over these past past few games, and it'll help him going into the the World Cup break, where he's going to be able to spend a lot of time with the squad and putting his ideas together. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's really promising, and um, hopefully after the international break, we can we'll see him be adaptable again and and just kind of put out the best team that he thinks will beat the opposition rather than just sticking with his favourites and putting out the same 11 every week. I just don't see him as a manager who'll have favourites. I really don't. I just, I, I, I just think, I, I think he's, he, he's almost like cool and calculated. I think, I think he's, he's so immersed in, in, in the data. I mean, what you keep hearing from all these players is he's such a, he, he's such a scholar of the game. He's, he's so passionate about the game. I think he almost transcends individual players to the point where he just sees, he, he sees them as, as, uh, as ways to get results. And, uh, and I don't, I don't, I don't think he gets over emotional about, it. I could be wrong. I don't know the guy personally, but that's, that's the way when you listen to him talk about football is that he, he's, he almost detaches himself from it and he's just so immersed in everything around it that, that, um, because I think it is a mistake to almost, uh, emotionally attach yourself to players and play players because all oh, we're playing their old club today or he had a good game last week or whatever i think that's a mistake and i don't think i don't think they're mistakes that that corbram will make moving to the other end of the field 
Pete. And, and I mean, we partly touched on this a little bit earlier. I said before that we had marginally less possession uh, than Stoke on Saturday, 49% to their 51%. However, our shot frequency was much, much higher. Also, um, when I went on who scored, they, they tell you where we were effective at creating goal scoring opportunities from. And the list was long shots from the flanks, from counterattacks and from set plays. Now, two things struck me about the way we attack under Corbrand versus the way we attack under Bruce. I felt that under Bruce, we had a lot of what I would call pointless possession, a lot of sideways possession, a lot of balls passed across our back four, where our, our pass percentages and our possession statistics might look quite good. But the reality is where we were actually having that possession and the threat of that possession was fairly low. And also, I felt we were a little bit shot shy. And I also felt we didn't necessarily have a lot of different routes to goal. Under Corbran, I would say that it is quality of possession over quantity of possession, that the players are encouraged to shoot. And that I think we, I think we have numerous different routes to goal, which make us a more varied threat. Would you concur with all of that? Yeah, I would. And, I mean, you talk about pointless possession, but if you look at the filter, which kind of tries to negate um, pointless possession and is focused on possession in the opposite, in the final third, then our filter was 57% to their 43%. So despite maybe having a lower percentage of possession in Stoke, we had more meaningful possession. We had it in the final third more than they had it in, in our, we had it in the final third more than they had it in our defensive third. So, that's obviously more important. Um, if you have touches in the final third, you're obviously more likely to score than you do if you have touches in your defensive third. Um, so we controlled the game in that way. Um, and that's, I mean, that was even higher in the first half before uh, before we scored our goal. So I think we could afford to kind of sit back a bit more after we got the goal. Yeah, as well as the shot creation. Um, I think obviously we're much more efficient um from set pieces than we were under Bruce. Um, and even though Bartley's goal this week didn't come direct from a set piece, it was, you know, basically the same thing that first uh, corner was, it was headed away back to Swift and he basically killed the ball dead and, and took another, it's, it was like taking a free kick, basically he still got the defenders up and it was, you know, all but a dead ball. And, you know, we won that first header and scored from it. Um, so that's definitely improved. And I mean, under Bruce, we didn't have an issue with crossing. You know, when you've got Jed Wallace, Jed Wallace playing, crossing is obviously going to be an av- avenue of attack. But hopefully we start to see more um, chances created from passes into the box from central areas and maybe dribbles, especially when, when Grady's playing. Uh, so, you know, it's promising. If we can create chances from a variety of different methods, then... It's it's much more unpredictable and much harder to f- defend. Um, so, you know, we should benefit from that. It's interesting as well that after the game in his post-match interview with WM, um, uh, Corbran said, uh, we, uh, we went today for the first time with a proper number nine. As if, you know, I, I mean, first of all, the suggestion being that that's not something he will always do. But it's nice to see that variety in it. And, I mean, what a performance from that number nine. Pete, you know, look, the goal will obviously catch everyone's attention. It was an unbelievable overhead kick. What, what a phenomenal finish! I, I was fortunate enough to be right behind it in the Birmingham Road, and it's just—I'll be honest. My first instinct was to look across to uh, to the referee to see if he was going to give foot up, because that's always your concern when you see somebody uh, do such a brilliantly acrobatic bicycle kick that that, uh, but it nearly kicks the defender's head off. Is that is that they're going to disallow it for foot up? But thank goodness he didn't. But I mean, it wasn't just the goal, was it? It was everything. I mean, the guys had five shots in the game as well, the most of anybody in in the team. So he's he's creating a threat. And I, I think I said it on Twitter that, I mean, Brandon, he's not the finished product. Let's let's be very clear about that. He's not the finished product yet. He's missed a good chance in the first half. He's missed chances in in recent weeks in games. He missed a big big one against Luton, as uh, as I recall, and and. You know, it, 
it can be a little bit frustrating with him. But the thing is, fans will always stick with a player like that because he epitomises what you want to see from a footballer. He epitomises work rate, effort. He's out there with a smile on his face. He just wants to be out there. And he just comes across as a brilliant, brilliant lad. He's so humble in his interviews as well. He's everything you want uh, the modern day footballer to be and what you wish most of them were, to be honest with you. And I, I, I just, I just think he's, he, he's a cracking nine as well because the strength that he shows with his back to goal, I mean, he must be an absolute nightmare to, to play against. And I mean, imagine uh, have, uh, you know, having, it was 85 and five actually on, on, on the weekend. But imagine having an hour of him and then 30 minutes of DK or an hour of DK and then 30 minutes of him. It, it must be a defender's nightmare because the guy just, the guy doesn't stop. And I, and from what little I've seen of DK, I don't think he will either. Yeah. Thomas Santi was really, it was a really good performance. Um, and he definitely deserved, deserved the goal. You say he had the most shots and along with that, he had the highest value of expected goals in the game. I think it was 0.5 just in front of Carl Bartley on 0.27, which is not something you'd expect. But I imagine uh, that bicycle kick wasn't terribly high value XG though. No, I I wouldn't have thought so. Being able to kick a ball out the sky about six foot high. But, you know, when you, your luck's in, you try that and, and it works. So, but you know he had a well it's interesting to say you say his looks in Pete but at the same time I think that part of it is is again it's a testament to the lad's work rate because he he said afterwards on WM that that is something he actually tries a lot in training he did try it against uh, against QPR it didn't really come off as well but it's obviously something that he practices it's a technique that he that he works on so there's, I agree with you. You need a, an element of fortune for that to come off, but equally, I think there's an element where you make your own luck. Yeah, and I mean, it was it was accurate as well. It was right in the corner, wasn't it? But he's clearly very acrobatic. Because I mean, I was I watched the uh, the Albion, you know, the the video they do from the you know the pitch side angle. I can't remember what they call it, but you watch it from that angle, and he you don't realize just how high he manages to propel himself up to to get there, but yeah, if he's practicing it and it doesn't train, and then fair play to him. But um, you know, I can't imagine he's going to score one of them each week. But you know, if he gets one or two, then I think everyone's going to be pretty happy. But uh, with the rest of his game, he was very useful in in linking up play. He received the highest number of progressive passes quite comfortably. He received eleven. The next highest was Wallace with with six. Um, so he linked up play well there and helped us get the ball forwards as well as receiving a couple of passes in in the box and playing three progressive passes as well. So helped us move up the field um, through the passes that he was receiving, as well as with a couple of the passes that he made. Um, so it was very useful in linking, linking up play there. Had the best the best chances of anyone in the game and had a goal to top it off as well. So a really, really good performance. And if we had got a game next week, then you would have thought he'd be keeping his place. You never know with Corbran, though, do you, to be fair? That's <laughs> but, true, yeah. But, uh, I mean, just to add to that as well, Pete, again, interesting listening to him speak after the game on, on WM. Um, he said that he said that Corbran had actually sat him down before the game and had shown him clips of himself playing from a couple of years ago. And it seems like the suggestion from Corbran was to get back to almost the no fear football that he'd seen from from Brandon Thomas Asante, and and uh, and Brandon said that that really really helped him. I mean, it's just these. It, what keeps coming through week after week is is these little percentage points from Corbran, these little areas where he just gets that extra 1% out of a player, where he just gives them that little bit of extra information or a little bit of extra inspiration just from the details. Uh, And I mean, I personally, uh, you know, and you and I are both people, you far more than me, Pete, but we're people who, who do study the percentages who do look for the kind of like the, the little outliers in the data, the, the little bits where, where where teams are getting it right and wrong and and to see a manager doing this and 
compared to, and again, this is not a dig at Bruce because there's many, many different ways to win a game of football. And I appreciate that. But Bruce was not a data man. That's, uh, that's been proven by, by quotes that he has, uh, that he's given in the past. He's not, a, he, he's not a big data guy. And to see a, a, a coach so immersed in the finer details, I find refreshing and fascinating. Do you? Yeah, definitely. Um, and whether it's data or just more of a focus on maybe video analysis and using that to help the players that he's got as well as to scout the opposition and kind of find weaknesses there. I think it's all it's all stuff that top teams do and teams that are kind of keeping up to date with the game and that's kind of where you can gain your advantages. And, you know, when football's won on such marginal moments you know it can take just one goal to win a game and that can come from from anything well and our season has been one of margins as well hasn't it Pete I mean when Bruce was sacked we hadn't actually lost a game by more than a single goal exactly and that's just what football is 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 quite often won by one goal and and that one goal can define a season so any tiny game that you can have is something that you should be looking to take advantage of and and you know even if it even if all that work you put in doing some video analysis with players results in one goal for the whole season, it could it could be the one goal that defines your whole season. So, yeah, any marginal gain is is definitely a good one. And just to finish off, Pete, I just want to talk uh, again, continuing with the the top end of the field. Um, it wasn't just Brandon Thomas Asante up there, but it was it was a very clear link up between he him and John Swift. Now, I feel like John Swift's performance in both this game and uh, over the last few weeks has has flown under the radar a little bit. But something we've been talking about really since early on in the season is that we felt we bought John Swift without a real idea of what to do with him and that he has been badly underutilised or utilised in the wrong way by Albion since, since we brought him in. I feel personally that... Corbran has come in and one of his primary focuses focuses has been how can I get the best out of John Swift and I really think he's starting to do that two shots one on target against uh, against Stoke at the weekend five key passes he's now got back to back assists and I also found it really interesting that when you look at his positional data actually Brandon was dropping off a little bit and John Swift's average position the average position where he touched the ball was actually further forward than Brandon Thomas Asante's average position for touching the ball. And this is something we've talked about with, with Swift, that he's not a 10. He's not a player that should be utilised as a Mateus Pereira type playmaker. He's actually very much a goal scoring midfielder. He's like, he's the guy who gets in the box a lot, a lot for you. And up to this point, this season, I feel like we've uh, we've utilised him either he's he, a lot of his positional data has shown him out on the left hand side, or we've been trying to ask him to be a ten or an eight, which I don't think he really is. And I think Corbran has come in and he's looked at Swift and he's gone right. I know what you are. You are effectively a second striker to me, and that's what he's turned him into. And I think when you look at Swift's performances in the last couple of games. I think we're really starting to see the best John Swift. What do you think? Yeah, I think he was our, if you go by uh, the positional data, he was our most advanced player against Stoke. And then against QPR before that, he was, you know, he was more advanced than, way more advanced than our two centre mids and our wingers. So again, it was like he was playing as a striker. And then even against um, Blackpool before that, he was level with, I think it was Carlin Grant who was also playing playing up front. So I think throughout all those games, he's looked like he's a second striker, which is, a, yeah, to me is what he was, is kind of where he's most effective. Um, and obviously we're getting a lot more out of him now that we're more effective with our set pieces. And that's a, where a lot of his assists came from for Reading. Um, it's so- going to be our Sorba Thomas P. I called this, I called this in the last pod and I'm standing by it. He's our Sorba Thomas. Yeah, and if he can uh, perform like Silver Thomas did last season, then I'm sure we'll all be happy come the end of the season. But I think that's it is kind of where 
he's kind of at his best creatively is from those set pieces and those dead ball situations. So if we can get the, the right mix and right routines in the middle of the box, then he's going to create goals from those kind of situations. Um, and he'll score goals as well. If he's playing in advanced areas, his movements usually quite good um, within the box. He kind of finds space quite often with late runs into the box. So I think he will, he will score goals if he plays more advanced as well. So yeah, I think you're probably right saying that Corbrand's kind of come in and, and looked for a way to get the best out of him because he can be a very important player for us for the rest of the season. Well, I think, you know, I, I, we, we remain, it remains to be seen whether or not there's any finances in, in January. You would imagine not necessarily, but obviously rumours to the contrary have, have abound. But I think what Corbrand's probably come in with a remit of is you've got to get the best out of out of what you've got. And John Swift is one of the best of what we've got. He showed that over the last few years in, in the championship, but we haven't been getting the best out of him up to this point. So I'm absolutely delighted that that is something that Carlos Corbrand seems to have targeted. Well, look, we will leave it there for this week. Um, you know, lovely to be able to do such a wonderfully positive pod. Long may they continue. Just for anybody who wants the the numbers, um, we actually haven't won four games in a row since the fourth of November to the eighth of December, twenty nineteen, when we won six in a row under Slaven Bilic. Um, obviously, we have won four league games in a row. We won four league games under Val, but they were unfortunately punctured by the um, thumping in the League Cup to Arsenal. But yeah, the last time we won four consecutive games in all comps was 2019, at the end of 2019. So we'll be plus three years since we've done that when we return to action against Sunderland. So let's hope we can bust that statistic on that day. Pete and I will definitely be back to talk about um, the the Sunderland game after after that match, which obviously has now been moved to the Monday night. Should there be anything that requires our attention during the World Cup, we will, of course, jump on and talk about it. And we, you never know, we might even do a preview pod for the Sunderland game because it will have been so long since we've since we've actually talked. And obviously, uh, Pete and I will be missing each other horribly at the, at that point. But um, uh, so it could be it could be a little bit um, a little bit unscheduled for a period of time. But we will 100% be back after Sunderland. We may be back before Sunderland and should anything dramatic happen around the Albion and let's be honest the club seems to attract drama like metal to a magnet um, the, it's not out the question that something that requires our attention could crop up in the next four weeks but until then enjoy the World Cup thanks for listening up the baggies and up the three lines from me and Pete as well Albion have certainly been sharing the goals around this season. They're well into double figures now for different championship goal scorers. So why not take a leaf out of their book and do some sharing of your own with a McNugget share box? Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered. By fans.